0: How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to make sure that we are prepared spiritually to study the Word. When we walk by the Holy Spirit, we God the Holy Spirit empowers our, our spiritual life, our learning, our application for eternal value. But when we sin, we're no longer walking by the Spirit. We're walking according to the sin nature. We're no longer enjoying fellowship with God, and we have to confess in order to be restored to fellowship and that we can maintain that rapport with God. So we'll begin with a few moments of silent prayer, and I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're so very grateful for all your many blessings and all the ways in which you provide for us, and Father, we know that we live in a time today when we see not only in this international arena with the war between Islam and the West that is continuing and intensifying, that there is a hostility to Christians, and many of our uh, Christian brothers and sisters who live in Muslim countries are being persecuted, and many have been run out and are facing very serious situations where they have lost all of their possessions. In many cases, they have lost the lives of loved ones. And, Father, we pray for them and pray for their sustenance and pray that this will be a time when they can apply your word and trust you and grow spiritually. But we see the increase in opposition to biblical Christianity developing more and more in Western Europe and in the United States. Uh, This is because they have rejected at a foundational metaphysical level the fact that you are the creator God of the universe and as such are the one who has defined the nature of reality. And so as they suppress the truth and unrighteousness, they are attempting to replace truth with error, worshiping the creature rather than the creator. And for those of us who do not go along with that, we become the enemy. We will become more and more identified as the source of evil, the source of resistance. Uh, we will be identified with Christ, who they think of as evil, and Christianity as the promotion of evil doctrine, as we've studied in Matthew chapter 10. Father, as we study in, in First Peter, we see the reality of uh, adversity, opposition, suffering, persecution among believers in the early church. And we pray that we might learn from this series in First Peter uh, what we need to do to prepare ourselves spiritually for whatever may come, whether it's at a macro level or a micro level, where we're just facing and dealing with the opposition of the world around us and Satan's cosmic system, or whether it's a more overt opposition. The principles are still the same in terms of applying these spiritual skills to every issue in life. And we pray that you would guide and direct our thinking In Christ's name, amen. All right, open your Bibles with me to 1 Peter. 1 Peter, major theme in 1 Peter is living in light of eternity. This is expressed so many different ways by Peter, such a spread of vocabulary. Words like hope, inheritance, uh, judgment, focusing on future judgment. Uh, All of these ideas and and many others relate to uh, relate to this whole issue that we see in terms of of living today in light of where God is taking us as church-age believers. We are in boot camp. You go in the military today, as I understand it, as you go through boot camp, you're, you'll be tested, evaluated in many different areas, and if you show certain aptitudes, then you will be Uh, given various uh, MOSs so that you can uh, be trained in certain areas of specialty. That is sort of like what happens in the church age. As we grow and mature, then we are developing capacity to assume responsibilities related to our, uh, our role in the future kingdom. So what we're doing today isn't just learning how to live and face and handle situations today, but it is building our character, building the the honor and the virtue in our souls so that we are prepared to assume those responsibilities that God would delegate to us, that Christ would delegate to us during the millennial kingdom. First Peter is a book that focuses on the fundamental spiritual skills that we have to uh, master in order to face and handle the adversities of life. And as I indicated in my prayer and in the past, we have two levels of opposition that we face. We face a covert opposition and persecution, which is like those living in a Muslim country or those living in Europe where where they may even be jailed or imprisoned for hate speech just for uh, talking about Uh, the fact that homosexuality is a sin and homosexual marriage is a sin. And that's uh, a preview of coming attractions in this country, I believe. But that's covert opposition that can lead to covert, I mean, overt opposition, which which can lead to overt persecution, even to the loss of life. But we also, in many ways in our lives, face a much more covert opposition. We face an opposition that comes from the angelic conflict. And this is one that we can't trace its origin. Often it just uh, presents itself in in a lot of different ways and a lot of different manifestations. But often we we deal with people around us who, because we're Christians, uh, they used to not say anything, but now they become more and more vocal. They may make uh, snide remarks here or there. They may... Uh, treat us with a lower level of respect. They may ridicule other Christians in our hearing, so they know that, so so we know that they are, in fact, ridiculing us and demeaning us. We may get a more vocal opposition from family members and from uh, business associates and from clients and from people for whom we work. And we may, that may express itself in a lot of different, very, very subtle ways. The way we handle it is fundamentally based upon grace. This is why there is an important thread all through First uh, Peter dealing with the grace of God, because that is a foundational skill. If you don't learn grace orientation and humility, then all of the other spiritual skills can't fully develop because they're all grounded on humility and grace, which is part of grace orientation. Now, when we look at any book in the Bible, any book, any epistle, the gospel, any of the Old Testament narratives, there's usually an introduction and a conclusion it 's not always that way in some of the uh, in, in, in some of the historical books uh, in the Old Testament. Samuel really doesn 't have uh, an introduction much of an, an introduction or a conclusion. It just starts right in on the story. but most books have an introduction and a conclusion, and in introduction and conclusions where you look to get a clue as to what the writer is going to be emphasizing what he is talking about. So uh, when we look at an epistle, though, we usually find at the very beginning a salutation. This is just the opening statement, which indicates the the writer of the epistle gives us some uh, some orientation to his position or his authority as to why he is writing, in this case, Peter identifies himself as an apostle of Jesus Christ, and the salutation also expresses the uh, destination of the epistle, and he is writing to the resident aliens, as I would like to translate that term, of the diaspora, the Jews that are scattered throughout uh, Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, which is the area of North and Western modern, modern Turkey. And that's, that's the, he identifies those who are uh, selected ones or singled out ones. We'll have to deal with that term elect according to the foreknowledge of God. And this always raises the specter of how we understand election and foreknowledge, Calvinism, all of these things. And it's very interesting, I've been doing some more study on that term, both in terms of uh, eclectus, which is the word for elect, as well as prognosis, which is the word for foreknowledge. Notice as you look at verse two that you have a Trinitarian statement there based on three, in three different prepositional clauses. We'll have to look at those prepositions to identify their significance and meaning. We're elect according, and all three of those relate to that word elect. Elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Elect by the sanctification of the Holy Spirit. Elect for the purpose of obedience and the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. So all three of those statements relate to elect. We'll have to look at that. And then he says, grace to you and peace be multiplied. This is the first use of the word grace, which is used 12 times. It's not always translated grace. It should be. Uh, It should be. uh, It's used 12 times in this epistle, which tells us that this is a significant theme in this epistle. Now, we come to the closing comments, and that's in chapter 5, verses 12 through 14. There he says that it's by Silvanus, that's the Latin name of Silas, who was Paul's traveling companion and was in jail with him in, in Philippi. Uh, by Silas, our faithful brother, as as I consider him, I have written to you briefly. Silas is the amanuensis, the Uh, one to whom uh, Peter dictated the epistle, and he may have edited it under Peter's supervision, brought it to to its final form. I've written to you briefly exhorting and testifying you that this is the true grace of God in which you stand. I think that is the key term that is important for understanding this, this epistle. It's not just the grace of God. When we think about this because the grace of God is just sort of a static concept, and and I like when I express and identify the the, the uh, themes and the purposes of, of an epistle, I like to identify it in a more dynamic way. Where to stand in the true grace of God? That's the focal point. How do you handle adversity, which is the major theme of the book, by standing in the true grace of God? We have to learn what it means to stand, to live our life on the basis of the true uh, grace of God. And as we'll see, that's the way to do that is to live today in light of eternity. He closes out by saying, she who is in Babylon, elect, again, singled out, I think is a really good translation for that word, elect. Singled out together with you, greet you, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Love is another key word that's used uh, about seven times, both I'm including both the verb and the noun in the in the epistle. Peace to you all who are in Christ Jesus. Notice he brings both those themes, grace and peace, together in his conclusion, telling us that there is something significant about those terms other than the fact that they're just a normal way in which someone in the ancient world would open a letter. Among the Greeks, charis was a common greeting. Among the Jews, shalom, peace, is a common greeting. But the writers of Scripture use these terms in a much more pregnant way. They are using them with a theological nuance. They are talking about something much more than just using them in the everyday sense of of grace and peace. We have our introduction at the beginning of the epistle, and this begins... In verse 3 and goes through verse 12. Uh, That's the introduction. And the introduction emphasizes uh, standing in the grace of God so that we can rejoice in the midst of present fiery trial because our love for God enables us to focus on the glories to come. Had to reduce the font size a little bit to get all of that in there. But I think that captures the essence of what is said in these, um, in these verses, in these ten verses. Standing in grace means we can rejoice in the midst of the present fiery trial. Now, that term comes up later on in the book, but he mentions uh, these trials and tests uh, here in the first part of, this, uh, of the introduction. Standing in grace means we can rejoice, have real joy. Now, one question that you ought to ask yourself is when you face adversity in in life, large or small, I think the small ones can always accumulate to where you don't have the charge of one mosquito. It's usually a whole mess of them that are just bothering you, and then you just go nuts. But how we handle adversity... Is a real sign of our spiritual growth and spiritual maturity at times, and w- certainly whether or not we are walking by the Spirit, we can get out of fellowship, and then you never know what'll happen. But that is a sign of, of a distinction for Christians—not only our love for one another, but how we handle a- adversity, standing in God's grace. And this is a real sign that—and that's what Peter argues here—is how we handle adversity is a testimony to the grace of God in our life, and is part of our testimony. And I would say, looking at what what uh, Peter says when we get to 1 Peter 3.15, that we need to be ready to give an answer to those who ask us why we have this hope. That's what it's based on, because we live differently. We handle adversity and suffering in a much different way than other people around us. And that our life is our ultimate apologetic, our love for one another and our walk by the Holy Spirit, so that people say, "What in the world is different about you and how you handle handle life So as we look at this there 's three through three through twelve is basically the paragraph, and a paragraph p- pulls together usually several sentences all related to the same topic, and this is the topic is how we can have joy in the midst of suffering. The first sentence goes from verse 3 down to verse 5. It is a statement of praise. When we see the word blessed be God, we're not blessing God. Creatures can't bless God, but the word bless often has the nuance of praise. So that should be translated praise. That's how the word blessed is used many times in the Psalms when we Uh, bless the name of the Lord, we are praising the character of God. So it begins, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again. What doctrine is that? Regeneration. Very important. We're going to see regeneration referred to again and again. Why? Why is this so important within this structure of this theme? It's because in regeneration we get a new life. We have a new nature. There is a fundamental change that takes place that should manifest itself in how we live differently from others. And, of course, it can only do that when we grow spiritually. So because God the Father has begotten us again, to what? To a living hope. A living hope. That ties it to resurrection uh, which comes up here in this verse and numerous times throughout the epistle, a living hope. Hope is a confident expectation, a certain expectation. It always focuses us on the future. So it brings in that spiritual skill of uh, living life in light of eternity, our personal sense of our eternal destiny, understanding what the end game is so that the end game motivates us and this, of course, is a very important factor for Peter because Peter has seen the end game on the Mount of Transfiguration when he went up on on that mountain with uh, the Lord Jesus Christ, and when James and John and Moses and uh, Elijah appeared there with with Jesus and Jesus was shown was revealed in all of his glory and and Peter. Uh, put his foot in his mouth again and said let 's uh, let 's build a little hut for Elijah and Moses and Jesus. He just lumped Jesus in with as a prophet like the other two, and immediately God the father said i 'm not putting up with this nonsense that 's in the Greek. Peter, this is my beloved son in whom i 'm well pleased, so he shut that down right away you don 't lump the Lord Jesus Christ in with a couple of human beings.' And so, but Peter saw the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. He saw the end game. So that gives him great motivation to handle uh, difficulty. We're born again for this living hope and to an inheritance in verse 4, incorruptible and undefiled that doesn't fade away. So that's that's the end game is living for this inheritance. And we're reminded that we're kept by the power of God through faith for salvation. That is going to be an end game term. Salvation, the ultimate conclusion, phase three, and uh, uh, the phase three term for salvation. And it's ready to be revealed when? In the last time. So again, we have to look at that term, but it's throwing our focus future. We're living in light of eternity. The key doctrines we see here refer to regeneration, hope, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, inheritance, personal sense of our eternal destiny, and phases of salvation. It emphasizes that the present understanding and application of our future salvation is critical to living out the Christian life today. Then we come to verses 6 and 7, and Peter says, In this you greatly rejoice. In what? In that salvation that's just mentioned back in verse 5. In this salvation you greatly rejoice, so we can have great joy today, wonderful joy, exuberant joy, In the midst of the most difficult situation, he says, though now for a little while, if need be, you've been grieved by various trials. That word for grief indicates real sorrow, heartache, difficulty, sadness. Just because you're a Christian, you're supposed to have joy, doesn't mean you're not going to be sad and you're not going to be grieved and you're not going to have heartache. The Lord Jesus Christ, it's the same word is used to describe the Lord Jesus Christ as he looked forward to and anticipated the cross in Gethsemane. He went through emotional turmoil. He didn't act on it, which would have been sin. Same thing that we experience. We can experience grief and heartache and sadness and sorrow, but we cannot, we're not going to act on it. We're going to act on the Word of God instead because our experience is defined by the Word of God uh, the word of uh, our experience doesn't define the word of God. So we have to make sure that our um, that <clears throat> our experience our, or the word of God is more real to us than our experience. It goes on to say that the genuineness, the documas in the Greek of your faith, that's your doctrine, as we'll see. The language all through these two verses is reminiscent of James one, two through four. So we get a full bore expression of the whole doctrine of, of uh of suffering. The genuineness of faith, the quality of your faith being more precious than gold that perishes, though it's tested by fire. That indicates the intensity and perhaps the pain and the suffering that may come with those tests may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. First Peter one eight says, "Whom having not seen, you love." This is uh, the first time we see the verb. It's used four times. And nouns used twice, for a total of six times. We haven't. S- Peter saw him. Thomas saw him. And They loved him. But the difference with us is that none of us have seen him. But we love him. Though now you do not see him, yet believing, that's the key issue, where you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, that's your doctrine. What's the end game? The salvation, phase three, glorification, the salvation of your souls, key doctrines here relate to our problem-solving devices, the spiritual skills, adversity, uh, faith as the content of what we believe, not just the act of believing, uh, testing, the purpose of testing in the Christian life, joy. Uh, We'll have to go through an introduction to the ten uh, spiritual skills and dealing with also with the motivational aspect of our unconditional love for God. Then in verse 10, we read of this salvation. So he's still talking about that same phase three salvation. The prophets have inquired and searched carefully, prophesied the grace that would come to you. It's a future orientation, the grace that would come to you. So grace is emphasized there, again, as something important to us. And the prophets in the Old Testament are looking into that. What's interesting here is that just as the prophets in the Old Testament were carefully looking and investigating, searching the manner of time when the Spirit of Christ would come, we also learn at this same time, verse 12, that the angels desire to look into these things. And so we are living right at the center focus of the whole angelic conflict and all of human history in the church age. So we are we're in the Super Bowl and of, of spiritual, spirituality in all of human history. And so we have to understand what these uh dynamics are. And part of what we'll have to investigate in verses 10 through 12 is just exactly why these verses, why is there reference all of a sudden to these Old Testament prophets in the in the middle of this introduction? At the end of the introduction, we're going to shift gears and go into the uh, first major section. First major section emphasizes standing in grace by girding up the loins of your mind, which basically means to get rid of all the mental distractions that keep us from focusing like a laser on spiritual growth and spiritual maturity. In the ancient world, where they wore very loose clothing and they wore, uh, wore robes in order to run a race, they would tie it all up and get it out of the way. So that's the idea of that idiom there, is to get rid of all of the distractions. Uh, gird up the loins of your mind and be sober. That doesn't mean not to be drunk. It means to think objectively. So it's get rid of the mental distractions, think objectively, and that is based on living in light of eternity. So this begins in verse 13 and goes down to uh, verse 10, where... Um, Peter says, verse 13, therefore gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, rest your hope. See, there's the main imperative right there. So the thrust here is to to rest your hope or have hope, have hope, focus your hope by girding up your loins and by being sober. That's the point. So that we fulfill the command by girding up our loins and having an objective way of thinking, but our hope is fixed fully on the grace that is to be brought to us. So we stand in grace, and that that is wrapped up with thinking, not emotion, not experience. So that that first command that we see there has to do with um, resting our hope on the future by girding up our loins and uh, being objective in our thinking. Then the next command... Uh, comes down in verse 15, we're to be holy in all of our conduct. And so that's the second way in which we are going to be able to stand, by, stand in grace is to have a transformed character and a transformed life. We live as a set-apart or distinct people. Holy doesn't mean live a morally pure li- and perfect life. You can't do it and I can't do it. Holy doesn't ever refer to moral perfection. It refers to being set apart to the service of God, and as such it means conforming to his righteousness, and we do that experientially. Uh, holy, The word holy in the Old Testament, kadash, also referred to those who were set apart to the service of Baal and the Asheroth in terms of being temple prostitutes. They were set apart to the service of their God, but that didn't have anything to do with morality, did it? So don't confuse holiness with morality. Morality, it may be moral, but it's more than that. It's not a, a synonym. It indicates being set apart to the service of God in all of our conduct, which, of course, excludes immorality. Then the third thing he says is to conduct yourself in fear. Fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. That's why this is here. Look, notice what he says in verse, uh, verse 17. Conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here in fear. So that's our third command in this section. The fear of the Lord. And fear is used four times in First Peter. So a critical thing. The fear of the Lord. It is more than just respect. Respect almost minimizes it a little bit. I often think of fear as those times when I was a little kid and my mother, I would do something wrong and my mother would just say, I'm not going to deal with it. Your father will when he comes home. Y'all remember those days? Yeah. That's, that's what fear means. It's much more than respect. It, it's a recognition that, that there's going to be negative accountability. And and that's what living in light of eternity is all about. We're living in light of the coming judgment seat of Christ. We're living in light of the fact that, that we're answerable for how we use our time and energy on this earth. So we live in light of the fear, fear of our Lord. And that's connected to uh, verse 18 with a causal participle, as we'll see, that should be translated, because you know that you were not redeemed with corruptible things. So that fear of the Lord is directly tied back to our understanding of our justification. One reason it's important to preach the gospel all the time is so that the more you hear it, the more you come to understand what Christ did on the cross for us as that motivates us for uh, pushing on to spiritual maturity. And then the the next command is in verse uh, 22, Love one another. Since you've purified your souls by obeying the truth through the Spirit, that is related to both confession and of sin and cleansing, but also continuing to walk by the Spirit. Since you have purified your souls by obeying the truth through the Spirit in sincere love of the brethren, love one another fervently with a pure heart. Indicates being in fellowship there. The idea of purity is the idea of being cleansed. Because you have been born again. There we go back to that concept of regeneration introduced back in the introduction. See how these threads go together. And then the fifth command comes in verse 2 of chapter 2. And I memorized this verse when I was a little kid, but I never really understood the force of this verse is in that imperative for desire. We are to desire the sincere, the pure milk of the world like a newborn baby. I think when we take that word like, that comparative, and throw it at the beginning, it it diminishes the force of the imperative. The command there is to hunger and thirst for the word of God, to desire it, to demand it, to crave it, like a newborn baby screams demanding to be fed. And when that baby isn't fed, like any of us, when we go on a fast, after a while it loses its appetite and eventually it'll starve to death. And I think that's the case of a lot of modern evangelicals is they haven't been fed anything from the Word of God in so long. They're on a spiritual fast and before long they're just going to starve to death. So that's our... Uh, fourth command and uh, our fifth command is to desire the milk of the word that you may grow by it, and the rest of that section going from verse uh, chapter two verse one down through verse ten relates on uh, this whole concept of spiritual growth. Uh, the principles laid down in verses two and three, and and notice it says if indeed you have tasted that the lord is and it's translated gracious but it's not a, a chorus there it's a word that has to do with mercy but it does bring in the idea of grace of grace orientation so we uh, are to uh, grow on the basis of the word of god and we have uh, this illustration like living stones being built up as a spiritual house in verse 5 and that is a depiction of spiritual growth you also as living stones are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. What does that remind you of? Romans 12.1, that, that we are to uh, dedicate ourselves and, and live our lives as, as spiritual sacrifices. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God. So this is clearly talking about spiritual growth and spiritual maturity, and our life as a spiritual sacrifice. And if your life isn't a spiritual sacrifice, then you're not growing anywhere, because that's what it is. Every time you make a decision to come to Bible class, you've given up doing something else. And now you may say, well, I really don't want to do something else. I'd much rather be in Bible class. It doesn't hurt. Some people get the idea that sacrifice means pain and heartache that you've really suffered to give something up. But that's not the nuance of the word at all. But you have done one thing positive instead of doing something else. And that is a sacrifice. It's giving up something that a lot of people would perhaps want to do so that you can pursue spiritual growth and spiritual maturity. So this section from uh, verse 4 down through verse 10 focuses on on this uh, this this spiritual edifice that's built upon the stone which the builders rejected, and incidentally, uh, that whole uh, quotation coming out of Psalm one hundred and eighteen twenty two was used by the Lord Jesus Christ and quoted by him in Matthew twenty one forty two, and that's where Peter understood the application and the interpretation of that particular verse. That brings us then. Uh, to the next section, the next major section, which, is, which focuses on standing in grace, which means humble obedience to even unjust authorities. The prime example that's given is the Lord Jesus Christ. This is in chapter 2, verses 11 to three twelve. This is a hard section for a lot of people. I think there's one section, and it's really hard on wives. But it's a tough section. I think if we're going to put this in context... Peter is talking to a group of Jewish believers who are facing opposition and persecution. Now, a lot of people want to put this within the Neronian persecution, and that's possible, but that wasn't necessarily an empire-wide persecution. I think instead what we have here, this is written to Jewish background believers who are trusting in Jesus as Messiah in the midst of a Jewish community that is rejecting Jesus as Messiah. And because of that, they are involved in relationships, in work relationships, in family relationships, in community relationships, authority relationships, where they are under opposition. And what Peter is saying is that they need to live their life to the glory of God, do everything that they do to the glory of God, not be in opposition or hostile to the authorities over them, that may be mistreating them because those authorities are not believers and they are believers and that they are to exemplify the, the humility of Jesus Christ who learned obedience by the things that he suffered and that he was completely submissive to unjust Authorities as he was taken to the cross. And this is the focal point in this particular section. So, when we get to this section, we see that standing in grace means humble obedience to even unjust authorities. And that runs just counter to everything that's part of us. I think part of the arrogance of our sin nature is when we're treated unjustly, we want to react. We want to stand up for ourselves. We want to say, you're wrong, I'm right, and I'm out of here. But that is just the opposite of what's being emphasized here. In First Peter 2.11, Peter says, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, two terms that are distinctly used of the Jewish community, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. So first of all, don't live on the basis of your sin nature, your, your lust for uh, recognition your lust for approval your your lust for a uh, power and authority uh, don't don't yield to those they war against the soul instead he says have your conduct honorable among the gentiles and gentiles doesn't mean unbelievers gentiles never a synonym for unbelievers it means gentiles means non-jews gentiles have your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers. Remember what Jesus said to the disciples in Matthew 10? If they call the father of the house Beelzebul, they'll call the children Beelzebul. Say, if they called me evil, they'll call you evil. And so when the Gentiles speak uh, speak against you as an evildoer, they may by your good works which they observe glorify God in the day of visitation. What's the day of visitation? That's when they stand before the throne of God, and they'll be forced to glorify us. See, the there is justice. It may not be in this life, but it will come. So that is the general principle, that we are to live honorably no matter what the situation is, so that by our honor we will glorify God, and our good works, our righteous deeds, our lack of retaliation, our lack of vindictiveness, and negatively, and our positive generosity, hospitality, and love for those who are treating us unjustly, will bring glory to God. We are to glorify do this so that God will be glorified in the day of visitation. So some key doctrines we see here have to do with our sin nature, the lust patterns, uh, living honorably and virtuously in terms of the spiritual life, living in light of a future judgment, and the role that good works plays in the spiritual life. And this would be the good works that are produced by God the Holy Spirit. In verse 13 of chapter 2, Peter goes on to say, Submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake. He didn't say submit yourself to most ordinances. He didn't say submit yourself to the ordinances that you think are just. He says very, uh, d- a very difficult statement. Submit yourself to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake. You're doing it to obey the Lord, not to obey a wrong government. So, He says, "Uh, uh, submit to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether to the king is supreme or to governors or to those who are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of those who do good. For this is the will of God. Most Christians run around most of their life going, well, what's God's will? Well, sometimes it's very clearly stated in Scripture. It's God's will to obey government even when you don't think it's a just law. He goes on to say, By doing good, you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men as free, yet not using liberty as a cloak for vice, but as bondservants of God. And then he concludes saying, Honor all people. Honor all, really people isn't there, but it's assumed to be there. Love the brotherhood. There's our term again. Earlier in the first division, he said love one another. In this division, he says love the brotherhood. Fear God. That's the beginning of wisdom. It's authority orientation. And honor the king. So key doctrines that we'll deal with here relate to submission to government and other authorities and addressing this issue of what is the will of God, especially when those authorities are unjust. Then in verse 18, he talks to his servants, which we can relate to employees. This could apply to slaves. The word doulos could apply to slaves or to those who were what we would call indentured servants. He says, be submissive to your masters with all Fear not only to the good and gentle, but also to the harsh. Not only when they're treating you well, but when they're not treating you well. See, what we want to do is, okay, I'm going to obey the guy as long as he's treating me well, but when he's unjust, when he's beating me, whipping me, when he's treating me maliciously, then I'm not going to obey him. And the Bible says, no, you obey him no matter what, whether he treats you well or harshly. For this is commendable. See, the word there is charis. He says, for this is grace. This is grace orientation. To treat the person, the unjust authority, in honor and respect when they don't deserve it. That is grace orientation. That's a whole new dimension maybe some of us haven't thought about in terms of what grace orientation means. This is grace, he says. And notice he says the same thing again in the next verse. This is grace if because of conscience towards God one endures grief, suffering wrongfully. How many of us want to sign up for wrongful suffering? Not anybody. But we live in the devil's world. That's the game plan. Uh, what cre- then he goes on in verse 20, what credit is it if when you are beaten for your faults, you take it patiently? Implication, you deserve it because you've done wrong. But when you do good and suffer, if you take it patiently, this is grace before God. Okay? A whole new concept of grace. So we'll need to look at grace orientation and how that relates to being in an unjust situation. Then he gives the ultimate example in verses 21 through 25, which is the Lord Jesus Christ who suffered unjustly. The law of of the Jews was perverted. The laws of Rome were perverted. And Jesus Christ suffered in an an extremely illegal act when he was crucified uh, crucified and died on the cross. So... Peter uses this as the example, for to this you were called because Christ also suffered for us. In this section and the next section, we just keep hearing this word suffering, suffering, suffering over and over again. Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow in his steps. It's not optional. He didn't say it might be a good idea. He says this is what you should do, follow his steps. He set the example on how to deal with an unjust authority. He committed no sin nor was deceit found in his mouth. It's the doctrine of the impeccability of Christ. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously. Put himself in God's hands. Later on, Peter will sum it up, casting all your cares upon him because he cares for you. And he did not react. He did not return evil for evil. But good for good. My mother always said, two wrongs don't make a right. And I'm telling you, we live in a world today, nobody understands that. Two wrongs don't make a right. Christians always have to respond the right and honorable way, no matter what it costs. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously, who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree. So we'll deal with substitutionary atonement and the complete and final payment for sin on the cross. That we, having died to sin, see, we died to sin in the baptism by the Holy Spirit, might live for righteousness. We're saved for that purpose, as Paul says in Ephesians 2.10 to for the purpose of good works, to live righteously. And then we're reminded that it is by his stripes, by his whipping, that we were healed. So we will look at, at the suffering of Christ on the cross. And then he explains, quoting from Isaiah 53, For you are like sheep going astray, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseers of your soul. And then he applies this to women. And I can imagine that perhaps the situation at this time was you had women who had trusted in Jesus as Messiah, and they're married to an unsaved Jew or unsaved Gentile. And so life has become difficult for them. And they are being abused, perhaps emotionally, maybe physically uh, mistreated by by husbands who are not saved, because the context here is that he's not saved. So, uh, Peter says, wives, likewise, just like Jesus Christ, that's what likewise means, just like Jesus Christ suffered the just for the unjust, be submissive to your own husbands, that even if some do not obey the word, that is the gospel, later on, Peter uses it, he uses the word obey the gospel, that phrase, without a word may be won by the conduct of their wives when they observe your chaste conduct accompanied by fear. I think the context here is really clear related to the gospel. And there are exceptions to this. I mean, if, if some woman is in a situation of a physical abuse where her life is threatened, and there are some other exceptions to this, then it may be time to pack your bags and go down the street until things can be worked out. But uh, other than that, there needs to be submission to the husband who is an authority. And then also he addresses their, their comportment. Don't let your adornment be merely outward arranging the hair. Rather let it be the hidden person, the heart. He's saying the real issue here is your character. It's not how you are on the outside, it's how you are on the inside. Verse five, he says, for in this manner in former times, the holy women who trust in God also adorned themselves being submissive to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, recognizing that he was the head of the house and he was the one who set the course in direction, whether he was uh, right or wrong. So we'll get into key doctrines here dealing with uh, different roles in marriage that God made male and female both in God's image, but he made them different. The parts aren't interchangeable. uh, No matter what our mayor may think. just want to see if anybody's paying attention. So we have to look at this in terms of the whole uh, role distinction thing, which runs counter to everything that your kids have been taught and your grandchildren have been taught. They're taught that that the roles are completely interchangeable. They don't know any difference. So when you take this a biblical position, you're going to be running counter to everybody around you probably. And then he addresses husbands, verse 7, Husbands, likewise, just like Jesus, he says, Dwell with them in understanding, giving honor to the wife as to the weaker vessel as being heirs together. He brings in the concept of inheritance, which looks forward to the future. Heirs together of the grace of life. There's our word grace again. That your prayers may not be hindered. See, husbands, if you're not treating your wife with honor and respect, it doesn't matter how many times you confess your sins your prayers aren't going to get higher than the ceiling because you're just bouncing in and out of fellowship. And this is one of the clearest statements in Scripture. Psalm sixty-six eighteen says, If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. And here it says uh, very clearly that your prayers will be hindered if you're not treating your wife with honor. First Peter three eight he says, concluding this section, Finally, all of you be of one mind, having compassion for one another. Love as brothers. There's our fourth use of that word love, our f- uh, third use of the word love. As brothers, be tenderhearted, be cur- courteous. Not returning evil for evil or reviling for reviling. Husbands, that means when your wife reviles you, you don't revile back. Wives, that means when your husband does something evil, you don't do evil back. But on the contrary, blessing, knowing that you were called to this, that you may inherit a blessing. Let the reality of the future shape how you respond to adversity in the present. And then Peter quotes from Psalm 34, 12 through 15. It's transitional to shift us from the topic of submission here in the midst of difficult situations to the next topic which is standing in the great in, in grace means humble obedience uh, means standing in grace transforms how we face adversity how we face adversity this is uh, the third major division of this uh, this epistle and it starts off in verse uh, in chapter three verse thirteen and who is he who will harm you if you become followers of what is good this whole point here is if you do what is good you shouldn't suffer harm. But if you do, it's better to suffer harm for doing the right thing than to suffer harm for doing the wrong thing. Because if you suffer harm for doing the wrong thing, you're just getting what you deserve. But if you suffer harm for doing the right thing, then that glorifies God. That's his point. He says in verse 17, it's better if it is the will of God to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. In the middle of that, he says, but sanctify or set apart the Lord God in your hearts, that's in your thinking, and always be ready to give a defense, that is to give a well-reasoned answer. That's apologetics. To think through how you respond to others. It is mandated right here. Always be ready to give a, an apologia, a legal, well, reasoned answer to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you, that confident expectation that takes you through the hard times. And do that. Give that. Give that defense with meekness. That's humility and fear, fear of the Lord. Having a good conscience, that when they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed. Now, a lot of times they're not, but they will be. They'll get theirs. Then verse 18, we go on. The example again is Jesus Christ. So easy easy for us to forget that, that we're to respond to opposition the way Jesus did. And so Peter reminds us again, Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, just in case you forgot, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit, by whom also he went and preached the spirits of prison. We'll get into the whole doctrine of victorious proclamation here as Jesus announced to the demons who were in Tartarus and those that were in the abyss that their condemnation was sealed by his payment for sin on the cross. And then he goes on, he talks about, uses an analogy from Noah's Ark, talking about a type of baptism that is related to to uh, Noah's Ark. Those who are identified with Noah were the ones who were saved and delivered, and that is a type of our identification with Christ. So we get into several key doctrines here related to suffering again, substitutionary atonement again, putting to death the sin nature, regeneration again, going back to uh, chapter 1, verse 3, and dealing with the baptism of Noah and the victorious proclamation. And then in the first part of chapter 4, he focuses again on Christ's suffering. We're to think like Jesus thought when we face unjust and undeserved suffering. He says, therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same mind. Think like Jesus thinks. For he who has suffered in the flesh... Has ceased from sin, that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. There should be a transformation in our lives. Once we're saved, we understand grace that we're going to live differently. We're living for God and not for ourselves. And that's the thrust of those verses. And then verse 7, he focuses on the end game again. But the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be serious and watchful, takes us back to the idea of objective, clear thinking. But this is in relation to your prayers. And above all things, have love for one another. Third time, he's emphasized loving one another. For love will cover a multitude of sins. When we love each other, it doesn't matter. Have you ever noticed that? That if you like a certain person who's in office, if you're a Republican, you have a Republican president, and you hear all the bad things that he does, you just ignore it on the news until they talk about the Democrats. If you're the Democrats, it's the other way around. They'll, they'll talk about all, you'll hear all the bad things that, that Obama did, and, and it just goes over your head uh, because you love that person, and so you're going to minimize whatever faults or flaws that they have. Love covers a multitude of sins. That's what grace orientation is. Be hospitable to one another. That's another aspect of grace orientation is opening up our homes, our lives to help others and to provide for them. As such, uh, Peter goes on to describe this grace orientation towards others, because when you're in adversity, one thing you don't want to do is help others. I'm too busy healing my wounds. I'm too self-absorbed with my troubles to be open and generous with others. As each one's received a gift, he says, minister to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. There we have our fifth use of grace. If anyone speaks, let him speak as the oracles of God. In other words, watch your tongue. If anyone ministers, let him do so with the ability God supplies, that in all things God may be glorified. Notice all through this section you have glorified and glory, both in verse 11. Then you look down to verse uh, 14. You have glory and glorified used again. You look at verse 16, it has glorify again. So you have to look at the what it means to glorify God and, uh, and understand that in relation to suffering. That's going to be uh, key in that particular section. And then the, this last section ends with a focus on the end game with ju- the judgment seat. He says, for the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. Now, that's not... Uh, I I misspoke there. That's talking about, I think, suffering and adversity that God's going to use to purify the local church and individual believers in time. Time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. He's going to use it to purify uh, Christians and to bring them to maturity. And And then Peter says, "...if it begins with us first, what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God?" Eventually, they will go under discipline. That idea of obeying the gospel of God doesn't mean works. In John three thirty six, John equates obeying the gospel with faith. The gospel is a command. Believe. It's a present active imperative. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. So you obey that command. It doesn't mean to obey the law. You always have to look in context. What are you being asked to obey? the command to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so you obey the gospel, which is to believe in Jesus. And then he says in verse 19, Therefore let those who suffer according to the will of God commit their souls to him in doing good to a faithful creator, bringing in the doctrine of the creation. Then he shifts to talk about spiritual leadership, about the elders, those who are the spiritually mature leaders in the congregation, the pastors who are among you, he says, I exhort... I, who am a fellow elder and a witness to the sufferings of Christ, that phrase tells us that he had to be one of the twelve because he's a witness of the sufferings of Christ, and also a partaker of the glory that will be revealed. See, he was there on the Mount of Transfiguration. Shepherd the flock of God, he says, which is among you, serving as overseers, not by compulsion, but willingly, not for dishonest gain, but eagerly, not as being lords over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. Okay, and that brings us down here to um, uh, the end of that last section, and then we come to our uh, conclusion, which focuses on the principle of grace again. I would say the key verse in uh, these verses from, uh, that should be from 5 1 down to 5 uh, 7, or excuse me, 5 5.10 is the key thought. 5, one to 5.10 is the conclusion. Uh, but may the God of all grace who called us to eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after you have suffered a while, perfect, that means to mature, mature, establish, strengthen, and settle you. So then there is the conclusion that in the conclusion he says this is a, uh, the true grace of God in which you stand. So by standing in the grace of God, by understanding grace orientation and humility, we can then develop our personal sense of eternal destiny, live today in light of of eternity, and we can glorify God both here and forever. Next time we'll begin with the opening and start to dig into 1 Peter. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study these things this evening Help us to develop a focus on the long game, that we are living our life in terms of eternity. Some of us have a decade left, some maybe a little less, some maybe have two or three or four or five, but we have to learn to live each day in light of the fact that the judgment seat of Christ is coming very close and we need to be prepared. And that means we have to learn your word more than we need to do anything else in life. It needs to be the highest priority that shapes everything that we do for your honor and glory. In Christ's name we pray, amen.